You're listening to Beat Autoimmune and Thrive, the podcast all about reversing and preventing autoimmune conditions so you can live your most vibrant life as soon as possible. We talk about autoimmune root causes, actionable solutions, and inspirational healing stories. I'm Palmer Kippola, and I used to have MS. Today, I'm an author, a speaker, a functional medicine certified health coach, a pickleball player, and nature lover who's helped thousands of people reclaim their health and their best lives. Let's dive into this episode. Hello and welcome. I am super excited to be joined today by functional medicine pioneer, Dr. Jill Carnahan, medical doctor. Dr. Jill is a board-certified integrative holistic medicine specialist, often referred to as the Sherlock Holmes of medicine because she solves the cases of the most well-known medical mysteries. She uses state-of-the-art lab testing and biochemical analysis, and she helps each patient identify the root causes of their illness by identifying nutritional or metabolic imbalances that might be contributing to their symptoms. And then she uses nutritional protocols and supplements, lifestyle changes, and medications to increase patient level of function and always seeks the gentlest, least invasive way to restore health and optimize healing. Dr. Jill has her own healing stories from breast cancer, autoimmune disorders, Crohn's, Hashimoto's, and celiac disease, and then mold illness. And what I love about Dr. Jill is that she is both a balance of analytical logic, data, and reason, and maybe the right brain side of compassionate, intuitive, and creative soul. Her new book, Unexpected, just came out, and I loved it. It's part autobiography, her healing stories, and prescriptive wisdom from her many years as both patient and practitioner. Welcome, Dr. Jill. Thank you, Palmer. So excited to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here. And I want to start, sometimes I usually start with story, but I want to start with you describing why you titled your book Unexpected. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's been about seven years since the first idea came to my heart and I really like prayed and meditated through it. And I had always felt I needed to tell my story, um, but that wasn't so common for people to write a memoir, especially if they're a relative unknown in the larger sphere of our world. But I kept feeling like that's a connective tissue. And then the title, as you know, writing a book, you think, okay, what am I going to call this? Um, two years before I published the book, I was with a, at a Christmas party with my staff and I got this gift that was a surprise. It was like a, a white elephant and it was a bracelet from Alex and Ani and it was called unexpected miracles. And it talked about basically in our life, if we have this perspective of viewing, um, expecting the unexpected or expecting things to like seeing surprises and suffering and difficulty and looking for the good in all circumstances. And to me that epitomized like unexpected miracles is something really beautiful. And whether you believe in God or not, a miracle is kind of like an unexpected happening that you didn't plan for. And that fit everything that I believe to be true. And then as we talked about, you know, the title unexpected is really like, how can you have life show up in a beautiful way when you least expect it by changing your mindset? And so that really epitomizes, that's a long version of the title. And it really, the true title is probably Unexpected Miracles, but we kept it short and succinct um, for that reason. I love it. And, and oftentimes when I do podcast interviews of my own, I typically end with that concept of seeing the gift in- yes in these issues, in these disorders, in the hard things in your life, looking back, 
But I think how powerful it is and why I decided to ask that question first was to really get people in the frame of mind of reframing instead of yes. what if what if this is happening for me and not to yeah. me, right? Can you see the miracle yeah. in this? And so going into this now, let's go back to you, age 25. You are in medical school and yeah. you felt a lump. Take us back. Yeah. So great question. And you're right. That reframing is everything because this was my first lesson at 25. Like, okay, how are you going to deal with what's coming? And I found a lump in my left breast and I did not think anything of it. I was working 36 hour shifts, crazy hours, insane, grueling schedule. And it's interesting because one of the things about medical education that many people don't know is it's, uh, it's brutal. It really trains out the empathy. Like it's sad that a system that's supposed to create empathetic healers actually creates the opposite in some cases because it's so brutal. It's so like, it's all about denying every single physiological need that you have, breathing, drinking, eating, peeing, you know, resting, sleeping, like all the stuff that we should normally take care of ourselves. The opposite is how do you get by with the least amount of sleep, least amount of food, least amount of, you know, not using the restroom, whatever you, you train yourself. So I'm setting the stage because in the midst of this crazy grueling schedule, um, I found a lump in my breast and I literally was like my first thought, I don't have time for this. Right. And I'm 25, so it can't be anything serious. Well, my intuition was strong. And even then I had this sense, I better check this out and at the insistence of those that loved me and who insisted, I got an ultrasound and mammogram and it was highly suspicious for something more serious like cancer, got a biopsy. And I'll never forget the day I got the call from the surgeon who said, Jill, I don't even know how to tell you, you're the youngest one we've ever diagnosed here at Loyola. Now, sadly, since then, there's been, you know, lots of women in their late teens and even early twenties with breast cancer, which is very sad. It's still rare, but way more than there was 20 years ago. But I got a diagnosis on that phone call of aggressive breast cancer. And to put it in perspective, I was with a group of young women um, that were being treated for breast cancer all under 40. So I was the youngest of them in Chicago and I'm the only one still living Palmer. Mm. Yeah. That speaks to the type of breast cancer for sure, but it also speaks about you and we'll get into you and everything that you've done and so forth. So you went, as my understanding is, through all you could do to throw at the cancer, right? You were in a conventional med- medical school. And so you did with what any, you know, self-respecting, very bright young woman would do. You followed doctor's orders and did the chemo radiation surgery. Is that right? I did. And it was so funny because I mean, I'd always known uh, that there was whole, more holistic options. And I, and I went into medical school with the idea that we can reverse disease and that we have the, you know, all the platform you've been teaching with your own life and illness and everything and, and how that we can, we have a choice and we can often change the trajectory of illness. But when you're faced with a life-threatening cancer, you know, then the rubber meets the road and you're, what are you going to do? And they definitely recommended. Now it's interesting because the one thing I always say too, is patients facing life-threatening illness, we think it's black and white. We think, okay, here's on the platter, the exact X, Y, Z that we do. And it's so not like that. And especially in my case, there was no standard. And even with the best data, I remember even looking at external beam radiation where they shine the beam of radiation into your breast it would a little bit hit the heart on the left side, which is where my cancer was. And the um, 
improvement in death rate was none. It was just a decreased recurrence rate. And I thought, well, why would I do something that has no proven increase in, in longevity or decreased mortality? So there was all these puzzles. As I, as I looked at the literature as a medical student, it was very puzzling because you would think it's even in medical training, you think there's a black and white answer and there's so not. So I have great compassion for those not even in medicine and having to face these decisions because it's so complex. Bottom line is though, it was very aggressive and I you know, was in a battle for my life and I thought, well, I'm going to make a decision and go ahead and do this. Everything they recommend. I made some adjustments in the radiation and I also made some adjustments in the drugs they use for chemo by request. You know, I kind of created my own plan that was a little bit less toxic, but even so it was incredibly yeah. toxic. Yeah. And I always say the cancer was easy. Like that was gone and I was in remission within nine months and that's never came back. But the recovery from the toxic drugs I took to cure my cancer has been the last 20 years. I'm still today having effects of those drugs on my system, on my immune system. Now, the good thing, and this is one thing I would leave with your listeners. And at that moment, I had to make a choice. And I didn't have the all-knowing power to be God and to decide for sure what would happen. I just had to use the best information. But I did make a decision in that moment at 25, whatever I decide, I'm never, ever going to look back and say, what if, and say, well, what if I wouldn't have done this or what if I, so I have carried my whole life with the knowledge that number one, I'm a living, right? So it saved my life. Number two, yes, I've had side effects, very, very severe side effects since that time, but I've never once questioned what if I wouldn't have done that. And that just gives me a piece to go forward. And I I think that's a great pearl to give people because when you're faced with a decision, all you have is the knowledge that you have in that moment and you have to make a decision with the best info you have. But if you regret it later or you have this like rumination, it can destroy you. And I chose very deliberately in that moment to never go there. And I haven't. And I'm glad that whatever the chemo did, I'm still here. (laughs) I love that perspective and it resonates so much with my practice. So I serve a community of people that are looking to recover, hoping, trying to recover from autoimmune disorders. And some of them are on medications. And I don't give prescriptions or advice on whether or not to take medication. But what I do say is about beliefs. If you are taking medication or whatever your choice is, 100% go with that decision. Believe it. Believe that this is helping you. Because if you're out of alignment with that decision, I I don't know, but my sense is that you're going to have internal, more internal chaos, right? You want to be aligned with what you decide. 100%. And part of the journey, the book and you and I's story is how do we really live in authenticity, yeah. which is like our mind, body, spirit, our external, our internal, all say the same message. It has the same values. It has, because if we have this external value of being this way, but then internally we're one way or whatever, and it's very easy to do that. It's hard to live authentically. Our body knows the difference. So it's like the body keeps score. Like you know, some of the great trauma teachers of Peter Levine's work and right. a Besser and stuff. Um, and it does, right. Especially with the realm of autoimmunity. Right. That's right. Oh, that is so beautiful. So Part of the healing from breast cancer, you're now back as a medical student and you're making your way through life. And then you were working in the ER. Is that right? Do I have that right from the story? And all of a sudden you just hit the floor. I did. So I, it's funny looking back, I was 
so sick after chemo. I mean, I was bald. I was the lowest weight I've been since maybe 12 years old and um, malnourished. My gut was destroyed by the chemo. So I had all these residual side effects of the toxic drugs that cured the cancer maybe, but did not do anything good for my um, reproductive system. I went into premature menopause. Thank Mm. goodness after two years, I actually got my periods back. So I didn't permanently at 25, but for two years, I was menopausal with hot flashes because it destroyed my ovarian function. All this to say, though, the interesting thing is I went right back to work because I did not know how to rest. I didn't know how to take care of myself. And I didn't know how to even tell someone, you know what? I'm really not well yet. I just thought I can't complain. I got to do this. It's that strong stoic and it's part of the system. It was part of my farm family growing up um, where you just you don't complain. You, You work hard. You try hard. And I was going back to work rotations with fevers like I was not well. I didn't tell anyone. And I continued to work for four to six months. And what you mentioned, I was in the ER in a rotation doing emergency medicine and I was taking a patient's blood pressure and I passed out cold. And I ended up in the hospital that night for emergency surgery for an abscess. Mm-hmm. And I woke up the next morning with the surgeon basically saying, Jill, we took care of the abscess. You have Crohn's disease. So all of a sudden I had new diagnosis within, it was all within a year and a half of the cancer diagnosis. And um, I was faced with autoimmunity for the first time and a life, another life-threatening illness. Yeah. And this time it's so interesting because you went and saw your gastroenterologist and what did you ask him and what did he tell you? Yeah. So I went and I was like, well, you know, what's happening? What's this thing called Crohn's? I knew of it because I'm medical training, but I, now it was me. So I was asking lots of questions. He say, basically said, Jill, um, and you're going to just cringe at this like I did, but I didn't know any better back then. Um, this is lifelong. There is no cure. Um, you're going to need immune modulating drugs. You're probably going to need steroids. There's likelihood that your colon or part of your colon will be removed through your lifetime. And it's incurable. He made sure to tell me a couple of times, there's no hope basically. And of no, course, no. I'm this optimist. Like, really? You know, can that really be true? And this is where my analytical head heard him. I heard the medical dad. I understood what he was saying. My heart, my intuition was like, that can't be right. Surely we have some control over this. And you and I know we do, right? But at the time, I didn't. I was still trying to navigate what does this mean? And the last thing I said before I left his office was, Doc, you know, I want to do whatever I can. Does what, what diet can I do? Does diet have anything to do with this? He did not pause, stop. He just said, Jill, diet has nothing to do with this. And once again, my heart intuitive sense, even though I didn't have a traditional, like long med, uh, nutritional training, I was like, that can't be right. That cannot be right. This is a gut disorder. It's my immune system rea- overreacting. And I went on a, uh, you know, ran, kind of a back to the medical library to prove him wrong, to figure out what I could do. And you did. And you found, I did. So, you found a food yeah. plan that worked. So tell me about yes, that. Yes, yes. So I came across Elaine Agotchel's specific carbohydrate diet. She wrote Breaking the Vicious Cycle years ago. I think it was in the 80s or 90s. So it was well before I found it. And she had had a daughter with ulcerative colitis and she found a pediatrician who had a diet that was helping. And what this diet does, there's many that can work in some way. This one in particular is good for inflammatory bowel disease. It takes out certain disaccharides and monosaccharide sugars that feed small bowel overgrowth of both bacteria and yeast. And I didn't know any of that. I just thought, well, what do I have to lose, right? Like diet's free except for the changes and stuff. And I didn't go on steroids. I had just gotten over an abscess infection. So I knew enough to be like, oh, steroids don't seem right. So literally um, I was on a very mild medication for inflammatory bowel, not an immune modulator. That was it. And then I changed my diet. And Palmer, within two weeks, my fevers were gone. My symptoms were clear. 
I wasn't cured in two weeks. It took me probably a couple of years to really reverse the microbiome um, imbalances and all the inflammatory changes that were contributing to the autoimmunity. But my story is just like yours. It is, we, we have something called reversible autoimmunity. Not everyone, but many, many of us, um, if we find root causes and triggers. And for me, it was searching with the diet, learning the microbiome. And through that experience, the whole theme here is my experiences with illness in medical school taught me far more than any medical textbook about what really happens in our body and how we can cure and overcome illness. That is so beautiful and profound. And I just want to pause on this because you are a medical doctor trained in a conventional medical system. You went through your own healing experiences and you know that autoimmunity is reversible. Yeah. Yeah. And this is possible. This is not just like, we're not selling hope. This is profound. Yeah. Yeah. And it is sad. I I taught start the book about basically incurable doesn't mean there's not a cure. It means there's no drug for the problem that reverses it. Right. So it's this idea that if you don't have a pharmaceutical that completely 100% of the time reverses a symptom or a disease pattern, um, then it's incurable. And that's just not true because you and I know there's ways to go deeper. And this was my first like real personal lesson on that level. Because within two years, I had no symptoms. And now I'm 20 years later and I am free of Crohn's. Absolutely. And you don't identify as somebody with breast cancer, as a breast cancer survivor, or as a Crohn's. I don't identify as somebody with MS. I mean, it's part of my story. And it's the one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given, which allows for this conversation, right? But it's only in the ripple effect. It's the gift, Right. This is is the opportunity. Really, this is why I love connecting with you because these are, these stories have to be told. And in the book that I wrote, I didn't want to just share my story. I share the story of 12 medical doctors who all, or practitioners who all had their own healing journeys and had to come to root cause medicine to heal themselves. Yes. Yes. And I love that you do that because you show that it, number one, it's possible. And it's not just N of one, like you or I, it really doesn't have the same thing. I've had patient after patient after patient that experiences healing in a real, truly profound way. And it absolutely is possible. 100%. 100%. Bring that hope. And it's exciting because um, medicine just doesn't teach that they have this uh, again it's great if you have a car accident or a stroke or you're in dire need of you know acute medical attention but for these chronic complex diseases that that's immune dysregulation you have to go to the root cause that's right that's right so this is a perfect segue into your root causes and i'd love for you to go back in time to when you were a young girl and you grew up on a farm in the midwest so talk about what you think, because hindsight is often twenty twenty, right? So what do you think what were the setup? And I love how you describe the toxin bucket. I use that as a metaphor. I think it's super, super helpful to visualize this because we all carry this toxin, this bucket. We can carry toxins until we can't, right? Both right. in part because of how many toxins are in there, but also because the size of our buckets might be smaller. So can you give us background on your upbringing that you think contributed to the breast cancer and then autoimmunity? Yeah. So one of the interesting things is that question of why I think any great clinician, that curiosity or any great coach or practitioner of any type, that question why is so imperative in the process, because when you start to think, even for me after the cancer, my question was, in fact, I don't tell us a lot, but in high school, I was voted in the senior class yearbook, most health conscious, like 
that was me. I was so, I already in high school ate clean and I did wow. good things. I didn't excessively drink or do drugs. And I, I took care of my body. So for me, of all people voted most health conscious in high school to get all this. My first question was why? It wasn't like a why God, like why, woe is me. It was never that, but it was a what happened that could have contributed? And is there anything I need to know so that in the future I can stay well? And so I went back to my childhood. So I grew up in a family of um, five children. I was the oldest girl, second oldest, and older brother and a brother right next to me, and then two younger brother and sister. And wonderful, idyllic, like we had you know acres of land. We grew a lot of our own food in a big garden, uh, close family, like lots of great qualities. But what I didn't know growing up that probably contributed was there was a heavy toxic load. And you talk about the bucket. I always talk about that as well. And it's like, we're born with a bucket capacity to detox. And as we go through our life, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, we accumulate toxic load. It's just part of life. So part of the uh, way we deal with that is if we incorporate daily detox practices, which we can go into later, um, how do we keep that load manageable? Because as that water starts to build up and spill over the top, we present with three things primarily, and then many, many other things, but autoimmunity is maybe number one, cancer is really common, and neurodegenerative diseases, which could include MS as well. So then you have autoimmune MS or um, Parkinson's or ALS or Alzheimer's or these neurodegenerative cognitive things. And there's many other things that could contribute, but those are the top three things we see that are related to environmental toxic load. Mm. So my question why was like, what happened? Well, again, I grew up on this wonderful farm, but back in the seventies and eighties, farming corn and soybeans in Illinois was very, very toxic. And so probably in our water supply and definitely in my dad's chemical records um, were some really toxic endocrine disruptors. Um, basically derivatives of things like atrazine and organophosphates and eventually glyphosate came along. And all of these things can act as endocrines like hormones on your body, although they're chemical. So for something like a breast cancer, which is a hormone derived cancer, those things, even at a young age, I'm guessing I got exposed in my mother's womb for the first time mm. with some chemicals, probably because she has a toxic or had a toxic load. And then um, as a young child, even drinking well water and things. And again, my parents were amazing. And what's happened since then, they've actually changed their farming practices. So they were just doing the best they could. You know, there's no blame here, but it's like all of us growing up in whatever society or bubble or, or, or organism that we grew up in or family, what things contributed. So I look back and all that toxic load was filling up my little bucket. I genetically was born with some things that were interesting. Number one, um, some pretty poor detox related to making glutathione and other things that help get rid of that toxic load or empty out your bucket. Number two, I had uh, celiac genetics, very high risk. I did not know it. I wasn't gluten-free. And in fact, at 14, I didn't really like the taste of meat. And we grew up in like a meat and potatoes kind of farm family. Mm. And so I stopped eating meat. I became a vegetarian at 14, just because I wanted to not eat meat. But looking back, number one, I had celiac, didn't know about it, probably had the start of malabsorption. Number two, I had a, a zinc deficiency. When you're a young girl or young boy with zinc deficiency, you won't like the taste of meat. That's actually one of the symptoms of it. Number three, I had hypochlorhydria, which is low production of stomach acid. So those were the perfect storm of meat never feeling well for me. And so why not go vegetarian? But at 14, I did not have a nutritional degree. I did not have the knowledge to have a balanced vegetarian diet. And what I gravitated towards was a carbitarian mm. and gluten full. I was not gluten free. So it was the perfect storm of the wrong diet to create more inflammation in my gut, more damage to my immune system and set me up for cancer and Crohn's. So we have the uh, poor detox genetics I was born with probably exposure from in utero on um, lots of chemicals on the farm that affected the endocrine system and hormones. 
and then a really wrong diet for me until I was 25 when I started eating chicken and fish again and, and really got rid of all the gluten, went on the specific carbohydrate diet and completely revamped. But all of those things, and then there's a whole bunch of things on toxic stress. And I was a really highly sensitive person. I didn't really know this growing up. I tried to be the strong, tough farm girl because that's the environment I was in. And I was suppressing anger. I was a suppressing sadness. I was a su suppressing real emotion and even the sensitivity. I'm one of the 10 to 15% of the population called highly sensitive persons, which means sights and sounds and chemicals and you name it. I'm more sensitive than most. They, those things affect me. And at the beginning, like we talked about, these things can be a curse or a blessing. I was always like internally, like, why am I so sensitive? Why am I the one who always gets sick? Why am I the one that chemicals affects? Why am I the one who gets so emotional in different situations or movies I cry or horror movies I can't even watch? I don't watch them because they're too traumatic for my system. But when I first read Elaine Aaron's book about highly sensitive person in my 30s, I was like, oh, I cried because I was like, of course I'm sensitive. I cried, but I was like, oh, this is not an abnormality. This is not a flaw. This is actually a gift. And yes, it makes me more sensitive to the environmental chemicals too. But the gift, just like we were talking about, is that I can see details other people can't see. I, I am more sensitive to patient stories. I can, you know, get clues. So in a way it's been a gift, but I didn't see it. And all those things led even the suppression of my emotions to my diagnosis of cancer and autoimmunity in yeah. my 20s. It's such a good story, and it's profoundly common, too, in the sense that I think as women, we are often raised to stuff our emotions, or maybe this is a generational thing. I don't know. My dad had been a fighter pilot, and he told me not to tell anyone that I had the MS, otherwise they would think I was weak. Oh, and so yeah. I hid that. So mm -hmm. that's another burden to carry, right? But in your family, and I had the same thing. You don't cry, yes, because it's just it's weakness. It's, kind of, it's weakness. It. It's weakness. This farm family, German stoic. It was you don't you don't cry. You don't and you don't. God forbid, don't act weak. So it's exactly the same mentality. Right, and even right. med school, going right back after I was so sick, I should have taken a year off to rest and recover. Right. But that would have been weakness, right? So I was taught to yeah. don't complain, don't share that you're feeling sad or weak or, you know, or, or feverish or whatever. It's exactly the same story. And it's yeah. not a bad thing. It's that generation. Our parents were doing the best they could. Sure. But it does lead to us suppressing those things that would maybe help us be more healthy if we were to actually be our full selves. That's right. That's right. And so healing, becoming authentically who we are is part of the path of healing. And when we look at these adverse childhood experiences, we hear about abuse and we hear about neglect. And it sounds like your story doesn't have overt kinds of trauma in that way. But as a sensitive child, and you know, maybe many people fit that category, we're we're just trying to get love. Yes. We're doing the best we can. And so we start developing core beliefs that we're not worthy or right. And so this is part of, I think, the setup of autoimmunity for sure, probably cancer. I hear about the C-type personality, right, of stuffing emotion. How do you turn that around? What did you do to begin to heal from, from that, the stories that we would tell or the incongruent personality? 
Uh, love this because I feel like as I, and this stuff all took until my forties to really dive deep. Um, I went through a sudden and kind of traumatic divorce right around my 40th birthday that I was never expecting. It was after a 20 year marriage of a really relatively good marriage. It wasn't a bad marriage. Um, but I feel like husband went through kind of a midlife crisis and came home one day and said, I don't love you anymore. But that was for me, just like we talk about these gifts, it was shocking. It was traumatic. It was very difficult, but looking back that shook my happy little bubble that I created of illusion. It totally shook it apart. It was like the smash snow globe, you know, exactly. and all of a sudden I had to look at like, who am I? What do I believe? Who am I without a spouse that I thought I'd be married to for the rest of my life? And what, so I had to look at these things then, and I had to go really deep. I had to realize number one, I was still good at dissociating and suppressing emotions that didn't feel right, like sadness or anger. I remember the first time I saw a therapist um, and I said, I don't get angry. And she laughed, of course, right? Duh, we all get angry. I just didn't even have any concept of that anger in my body. So I had to number one, somatically re- kind of go back down. I say in the heart space, and I would say, you have the, you know, the head, my analytical mind had done me well for the first half of life. And I love to using that, but that can also be a coping mechanism when we go into our head and analyze and we're just dissociated from the body. So part of the healing was going back into my heart space, my intuition, which is actually quite strong and listening and saying, oh, my chest feels heavy. Maybe I'm sad or, mm. you know, oh, I feel tight in my body. Maybe I'm angry and starting to identify how my somatic system would give me clues of about emotion, about life, about even answers to complex problems. And when I reintegrated that, it was so powerful in the healing. A couple other things that happened. One was um, I was in a group of professional health professionals at a mastermind and the guy who was teaching was talking about addictions. He had been an alcohol um, addict and drug addict and was talking about how we need to have compassion for those who are addicts. And I kind of tuned out because I thought, well, I don't do drugs or alcohol. So that's not me. <laughs> but moments later, he called us all out and he said, all of you in this room are addicts. And I got he got my attention like, what? I don't, what are you talking about? But then he went on to say, you all have work as an addiction and you get your value and your um, feeling of worthiness and love from the work that you do. And it's not a bad thing because most of you are making a difference in the world. But if you get your value and your love and you suppress trauma and emotions that you don't want to feel with work, it's Mm -hmm. still an addiction. And it really hit home for me because I realized, oh, one of the things that was very common was I would go, go, go. I would not stop. I would just, you know, work 24 seven. I loved it. I love what I do. But part of that busyness and working and moving was number one, because I felt like only was I truly worthy of love when I was achieving or succeeding, which is a very wrong um, conclusion because then you're always on this treadmill and no success is ever enough to fill that true love. And then the second thing was that slowing down and stopping or pausing would cause emotions to bubble up or to me to feel like a little anxious because I'm not doing anything. And I had to learn that being, just being Jill, just being Palmer is enough to be worthy of love. And it doesn't matter on external validation. And many, many people can relate. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but for me, it was a big lesson to relearn that and to be okay with sitting still and just being me and not producing or or succeeding or achieving for value because that's never going to be enough. Mm -hmm. And as you and I talked about earlier, autoimmune by nature metaphorically is attack of self. 
So part of our healing has to be, how do we really love ourselves, love our body? And I shifted the story too, instead of being like, oh, why did you fail me body? Like I always felt like I had a strong mind, but my body was failing me. And I was so Mm. mad at my body for like getting cancer and getting Crohn's and like, what is, and sometimes I'd be exhausted. And I was so mad at my body. I remember this going way back to an example when I was five years old playing the piano. I took piano lessons for five years and because I couldn't play it perfectly, I would literally bite my fingers till they almost bled because I was, I was like, how do I inflict pain on myself? Because I hate myself in this way that it's not performing. And I look back, I'm like, oh, that poor little sweet five-year-old, she was trying to be perfect and who of us can be right. And that anger of myself towards self, that's a root of autoimmune. It's self hatred, self-attack. So I had to heal from that. I had to start to love this beautiful, precious body that took me through so much. And I started changing the conversation. And I started saying, oh, sweetheart, thank you. You've been through so much. You're such a survivor. You're so strong. Thank you for breathing every day for me, for my heart beating every day. And by loving and having gratitude for this beautiful body that God gave me, it, it changed. It slowly transformed me. Wow. I have chills now, and I feel like of any part of this conversation, if people hear this and really feel it in their body, I think, and autoimmunity affects, I think, is it 70%, 80% a female thing? You know, um, there is a fear. I know I had it for many, many years about sitting down and getting still, being quiet. Why? Because if I sat and I wasn't doing anything, what would come up? Tears. And there was a time where I felt like, is the grief ever going to end? Like I have an unlimited supply of tears. It's scary. It's really scary to feel that vulnerable, especially when we're raised to perform. And be tough and strong, right? Because that was like our our signal of like weakness. And both you and I had parents and family that were like, oh, don't cry. Don't show weakness. So if we sit and we feel sad, it's like this horror of weakness comes upon us. And I love how you describe, because what I had to learn, and it sounds like you have been there too, grief, sadness, first of all, if we suppress for 40 years, it's going to take, it's going to come up and feel overwhelming because we've suppressed 40 years of grief, which is what I did. And second, it feels like a tsunami that's going to overtake, that's going to ground you. I remember sitting after some of the therapy I did, same as you and starting to feel this grief. And I thought I was going to die. I thought this is going to take me out. Like, and and it's no wonder we keep moving and doing so that we don't have to feel that. But here's the truth about emotions. If we sit with it, it's going to feel like it's going to wave comes over us and we're going to drown. But if we sit and we stay, all emotions have a wave form and all emotions will come and go and if we if we can remind ourselves as we sit with that emotion that feels like it's going to drown us and grief is like this too grief may be the hardest because it's it's a true deserved emotion of some losing something you love or life changes as you knew it and even grief of getting a diagnosis can be this way but any of those emotions they come like a tsunami they feel like they're going to drown us but if you sit and you stay with it it passes And what happens after that is this most beautiful, it's like the sun after the rain. And it's like that feeling of the air and the smell after a lightning storm or a spring rain. It's so refreshing. And all of a sudden you have this one experience where like, okay, I can do this. 
I survived. That wasn't so bad. Then the next time you have more confidence and the next time, and I'm still to this day, I still work with when sadness comes. I feel like the life is ending or it's not so good, but you know what? That wave comes and it goes. And even you listening, if you have had this or you're scared of feeling that the only way to heal is through, you can't suppress that and get well. And it's hard, but it's so worth it. If you can learn to ride that wave. Oh, I just feel more waves of chills going up my body because that's how I resonate with truth. And it really is that way. And I've interviewed Dr. Joan Rosenberg, who has that book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love. And she talks about riding those waves of what we perceive as negative emotions. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily even negative, but we we just have to allow all of it. What's more harmful is suppressing it, not allowing it to come up and out. So, so talk and about, I say yeah, yeah, please, calmer, please. It's so important. There are so many right situations where people take medications for anxiety, depression. So this is not a comment or a judgment at all. And if you have suffered with depression, anxiety, and meds are helping you, or you've been on meds, please know this is no critique on that, but those kinds of meds and other things we use to suppress our emotions. So overeating, gambling, sex addiction, um, drugs, alcohol, work or any other thing you could name, right? What we do is we stamp down, we try to suppress this thing we don't want to feel that we're afraid of. And again, meds can do it too, and they do it really well. But what it also does, if you think about a curve or a wave or a sinusoidal thing, it takes off the bottoms where you crash down, but it also takes off the top of those waves. So your ability to feel life and be in love with Mm. euphorically life and light and love and joy and the things that we get to experience, the highs, the natural euphoria that we get from climbing a mountain or being with a friend or um, sharing with a loved one or, you know, spending time in nature, whatever thing that gives you that high, if you blunt it with an addiction or a drug, you will also blunt the highs and you will not get to experience life to the fullest. And to me, there is nothing better than a natural high of uh, giving a hug to a friend or being in nature or helping a patient. And I, as much as I don't like those lows, you have to have both. You can't, you can blunt it, but you'll be blunting the beautiful, amazing parts of life as well. So beautifully said. And another, I'm going to segue this one into mold. And here's how, because you mentioned depression, depression, and anxiety. And and sometimes people feel like these are biochemical imbalances or whatever, and they do something to suppress that feeling. But sometimes that feeling is really real. And sometimes those feelings are a result, they're a symptom of something that is harming our biology, a biotoxin like mold. And so autoimmunity isn't the end of your story, healing, right? And my understanding is the mold illness that came after was perhaps even more difficult. So can you talk about what happened after you had massive amounts of rain? Yes. So Boulder flooded in 2013. I was in a medical office there and doing my practice and loving life. And the year later, I started getting shortness of breath, exhaustion, brain fog, skin rashes, uh, my horrendous cystic acne, red circles around my mm. eyes as they would bleed, um, weaken immune system. And I knew something was going wrong, but I didn't really know what. And I was in denial for a bit until I finally had to test 
the, the building, found bulk samples of stacky batteries, which is a black toxic mold in the basement under my office. Um, and there was an unfinished crawl space that had standing water, probably also had mold. And then in my urine, I tested my urine and it matched, it had trichosethenes, which is a mycotoxin from black toxic mold. Mm. So that very day when I got those results, I literally never set foot again in my office. I had to leave, I had to find a new place to practice, get rid of, I had a, a couple of shelves like this behind me with books. I love books just like you. Yeah. And I had to of all of them and start over. Um, and I realized that that mold in that building was massively causing illness. So I started on that pathway and it was one of those things I would never have chosen, but it allowed me to really, because I had to heal myself, um, become a mold expert, which is the next part of my journey, but it was a long journey there. And I always say that was much harder than the cancer. Cancer people know what it is. They see you're bald. It's very clear. There's lots of compassion. Many, many doctors even don't understand how it affects. And I think it was worse as far as physical too, Mm. uh, at least as bad. Um, But I had to really learn how to detox, how to pull that bucket toxic load down. And And you did it. You did it. Yeah. So you are free of mold illness. You're free of Crohn's and celiac and Hashimoto's as well. We didn't mention Hashimoto's. Yeah, I'm on thyroid medication, but my thyroid intuitive, I'm super stable and I don't have any uh, symptoms of it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. So back to mold for a moment. We see increasing number of people that are just really, really taken down by mold. And when you look at the burdens of things, whether it's infections or toxins or whatever it is, um, Can I ask what your opinion is? You've seen thousands of patients and across all of them, if you're looking at yeast and parasites and mold and Epstein-Barr and and you've got chronic Lyme and so forth, is there something that's weighing more heavily on the immune system? And I know there's always an order to go about things. And I've heard you talk about Lyme and how we all carry some burden of chronic infection. So tell me, where does mold fit in to your diagnoses and how you treat people? Yeah. So in what I'll try to do in just a few minutes is take something super complex and say at the basic, this is where we're at. So almost all complex chronic illness, especially autoimmune disease, disease, which is probably the number one thing I see and treat um, is a core level of toxic load plus infectious burden. And these two things combine to create immune inflammation, dysfunction, either immune weakness or overactivation. And often in the same person, you have an underactive immune system to fight infections, but an overactive self-attack, which is the autoimmune disease, which seems crazy, but it's like these two parts are very dysfunctional. So toxic load, I think the elephant in the room, if there's one thing that's most burdensome, it's every year we exponentially increase the number of chemicals we're putting into our environment, whether it's plastics or parabens or phthalates or organophosphates or um, all of these things affect our immune system and our ability to function. And they fill that bucket level with water. And so over our decades of life, it gets more and more full and often autoimmune disease isn't diagnosed till thirties, forties, fifties, because it took a little while for that bucket to fill up and start to present. And that tends to weaken our own innate immune system and ability to fight off things. So whether it's a new infection like COVID during the pandemic or old things like chickenpox when we were five or mononucleosis, which is Epstein-Barr when we were 19, those things, once we have a virus like that, it's in our system and it should never bother us if our immune system is strong and robust. 
Um, but as we know, like chickenpox can reactivate a shingles at any age when there's a surgery or a stress or a lack of sleep or, a, or something going on. And mold comes into play because mold is one of the most common insidious environmental toxins that people are exposed to and they don't even know it. It could be hidden like behind the wall here and I wouldn't even know it except I'd be more foggy and tired. And more and more buildings are um, being put up construction very quickly. Um, they are often very airtight. So if there is an issue inside, the dilutional effect of having some airflow is limited. So it becomes more toxic internally. The types of molds that are growing indoors are much more toxic. They produce more heavy mycotoxins that affect immunity. So this combination of environmental toxic load, which is weighting down the immune system, allows for, like you said, those old infections. And Lyme is another thing. I think there's thousands of people who are bit by ticks or spiders or arachnoids carrying some of those. We call them tick-borne, but things like Bartonella and Babesia can be carried by other vectors other than just ticks. And many, many people have one of those in their system and they're fine. Their immune system is keeping it under control, but they go through maybe post-COVID or a lack of sleep or death of a loved one or surgery. And all of a sudden that weakened immune system plus the environmental toxic load, or as we mentioned, mold in their home or environment, and then those infections will pop up. And those are both things very commonly roots of the trigger that starts to take someone into autoimmune disease as well. Absolutely. And so when you have this constellation of things going on, are you, the way that we practice, Lyme isn't the first thing that we look at or treat because sometimes when you address the more heavy burdens, like, you know, getting somebody out of a, a moldy building, for example, then they are free to heal. Um, do you see things like that? And where do parasites fit in to your you know, how you see things and how you work with people. Is it right up there with mold? Is, is there a pecking order? So yes, I always start with environmental toxic load and mold absolutely at the top. And I'll also say now I actually go with limbic system even above that oh, yeah. because there's such a, I, I, as I was researching for the book, I found something very interesting. I would have said before I wrote the book that almost 100% of patients I've seen with mold illness have some sort of uh, traumatic response to mold, or they have a little bit of fear about getting mold exposure. It's like this limbic activation, yes. limbic effects are amygdala, which affects fight or flight. Like there's some dangerous thing that's in the environment. And that's very, very common. And I knew that most people, even if they're happy, healthy, have done therapy, they're, you know, good in life, they still often need some limbic support at kind of re uh, uh, uncoupling the experience from trauma. And I was like, why is this so, so common? Well, there is little literature that I talk about in the book that shows a chemical inhalation can trigger the hypothalamic access into amygdala response and limbic activation just from breathing in a chemical like mold toxin. So even again, if you're happy, healthy, you're done all the work around somatic experiencing or whatever you've done and you get a mold inhalation, it can trigger a chemical limbic response even if you're healthy emotionally. So I realized everyone who has mold exposure needs to do some limbic work. That could be as simple as a um, massage, like cranial sacral massage, or it could be as simple as binaural beats listening to music, or you could do some program. There's all kinds of programs out there as well. But that limbic is number one, because if your limbic system feels that it's afraid it's not safe, there's no amount of supplements or diet or nutrition or mm. environment that will help your body feel safe. And in order to heal from autoimmunity and from mold and from most of these things we're talking about, your body has to feel somewhat safe or it won't heal. That's just a, a given. So limbic is first. 
mast cell activation, if that's involved, which is not all the cases, but is becoming more common where the mast cells get irritable and angry and throw out prostaglandins and histamines and cause reactions. And mold is a big trigger for that too. You want to deal with that. And then next is mold and environmental toxicity. So dealing with tox, uh, detox, like glutathione binders, support for the liver, infrared sauna, Epsom salt baths, all the things that we can help our body eliminate dry brushing, hot and cold uh, therapy. And those, that's kind of the next step. Then while I'm doing that detox, I'll start to look at the gut and the gut often involves parasites or other infections, but I don't really go to like the Lyme or the Epstein-Barr at any deep level until I start to get the toxic load under control in a few months. And parasites are part of the infectious burden, um, but those can really continue to hit people EMF sensitive or gut disorders or whatever. So they are important. It's just a matter of the probably limbic mast cell toxic load in gut right in there. And then yeah. next you go to infections. Yeah. So beautifully said. And I love that there's an order of things. And I wonder, I don't know that this is possible, but I have a lot of clients that are dealing with mold and it is a shocking thing to, you, you feel safe in your home, you love being in your home. And then all of a sudden you find that, oh my goodness, I'm being poisoned by my home. Yeah. And I didn't know that it's what's mm-hmm. responsible for my brain fog and joint pain and gut issues and on and on and on. And sometimes you're the only person in the family who's having these symptoms and your spouse or partner thinks, well, you're just a crazy, whatever canary or doesn't take it seriously. So this is, this is real. This is really real for people that are going through this because there is an expense to the inspection and the remediation. And I'm wondering, is it possible to begin the limbic retraining training or retraining, however you say it, um, while you're still living in a moldy place, like, can you keep the bucket from spilling more? Or do you have to have that pristine environment before you can begin the limbic? And I, there may not be a perfect answer to this, but it's just come up as a question recently. No, Palmer, this is perfect. And your questions are so good because you understand this. The answer is yes, you can start because, um, I really believe I was talking to Dave Asprey the other day and he, he's like, I don't react to mold anymore. And I believe that he's done so much work, 40 years as any, he has so many programs in deactivating limbic stuff. He's probably one of the you know, pros out there on how do you actually hack your own physiology? So I do believe that you could get to a state where you would be at least less I don't think every single person who has the sensitivity genetics is going to like, even me, I'm in a healthy, really good spot with mold. But just last summer, my um, neighbor's fridge leaked down into my condo. I had ketomium growing. I was pretty sick and it didn't take long. I didn't go through the trauma I did last time. I was like, okay, I can, I just stayed in there. I even stayed in there during remediation, which years ago I would have never tolerated. And I would never tell my patients were really sick, but I did. Okay. And now I'm fine. And I'm in the same condo. And I'm, but what happened is over those like six years, I did tons of work on the limbic system. So I decoupled some of the trauma that mold has on me. Now, again, physically, I still am sensitive, but I know right away what to do. And I also don't panic, but I did a lot of work around changing that. And Dave will go on to say, I don't have any reaction at all, which is amazing. And I believe him. Yeah. I'm not quite there because I still react. Right. And most of the clients like you and I see, I would say you're probably going to lifelong have some reaction, but what you want to do is the resilience, that word, which is in my title, because I love it so much. It is all about how do we know exactly what we need to do to get right back on track and to, to, you know, like say we get a mold exposure, take the time we need rest, do a bath, do a sauna, take some charcoal and within 24 hours, I'm better. So I know what to do. And that's what, when we have those tools, then we don't fear it so much. 
So beautifully said. And I know we're getting close to the end, but I can't not ask you about identity because this is something that I think is so critical. When I start hearing people talking about my MS or my Crohn's, I caution you know, about really decoupling your identity from the illness. So talk about the importance of choosing a new identity as you do this work and move towards healing. Uh, I love this. And you you alluded to this in the beginning and I heard every word you said because a couple of things, when we want to form a new habit, so when we want to change the way we, um, you know, get angry quickly, or we want to change the way we think about something, or we want to change our body in an illness, the best way to change habits is to change identity. And, and this goes into illness. I'll tell about how that connects in just a second. But for example, I don't smoke and I don't eat gluten. Those are who I am. They're not a choice I make every day. So if someone offered me a cigarette or a piece of bread that had gluten, there's not even a thought of, do I want that today or not? I don't have any decision-making fatigue because I am a person who is number one, health conscious. Number two, I, I'm uh, gluten-free and I am non-smoker. That's who I am. So there's never, never, never even a slightest bit of energy taken to make those decisions because it's an identity. So if you want to create a new identity with health and healing, part of that is or a new habit, I should say, part of that is becoming. So many people want to lose weight all of a sudden, like, well, I am a healthy person, so I don't eat donuts or whatever thing that they're trying to overcome. It could be anything at all. But if you all of a sudden start to, and when you start, you may not believe it, but when you reinforce that pattern in your subconscious, your subconscious will automatically make it happen. So you can actually change through mantra, through meditation, through prayer, through journaling, your identity of who you want to become and what you and I have done. And I think this is so powerful. Even to this day, 20 years ago, I had breast cancer. I am technically a breast cancer survivor. I never use that word. And if someone were to ask me today and I'm like thinking about someone, something else and I'm like breast cancer, did you have it? I almost have to like shake myself and say, did I have? yeah, I guess I did have breast cancer, but it's so foreign that I'm a breast cancer survivor because that's not my identity. And it never was in the midst of that. I was like, no, I'm going to overcome this. I'm not going to become my diagnosis. And granted, I have a great deal of compassion for those of you who are suffering. And sometimes there's comfort in like, oh, this happened to me. But when we shift that, this thing happened for me. And it's just a one little bump in the pathway of life. And as we started our conversation, if you can reframe it and look for unexpected miracles or gifts in the midst of your suffering, all of a sudden you might find that the teaching, the experience, and the learning that you get during this difficult time is the best thing that ever happened. Wow, I have chills again. What a perfect way to end, Dr. Jill. This was a magnificent conversation, such a privilege to have this conversation with you. And I really encourage people to get your book. It's so beautifully written. It's such a magnificent story that's told with your story as the canvas, but the canvas upon which you paint prescriptive advice. And this is not just from your own personal experience, but the wisdom of treating thousands of patients over the years. And I think you did a, a really beautiful job. So can they get the book at read on, should they go to readunexpected.com? Is that the place where they should go? Yeah. So readunexpected.com is where you get all kinds of freebies. I have a secret chapter I recorded that's not in the book, a mast cell activation lecture, um, a free coloring journal. So if you want to kind of get your inner child in color, that's all free there, but um, you can grab the book there or anywhere you buy books and then go back to read unexpected to get the freebies. Yeah, go do that. Um, and thank you for 
your service to humanity with what you're doing and sharing your stories and your vulnerability, how much power there is in that and these expansive conversations. It's just an honor to be on this journey with you. Oh, Palmer, I feel the same. Thank you for all that you do in the world. And it's one of those, you're one of those people that, again, the energy here is beautiful. I have so much gratitude for all that you've done for your own health and all that you do to change other people's perception of health as well. It's amazing. Thank you. Be well, my friend. Thank you so much. Bye for now. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And if you feel inspired, please leave a quick review so other people can find it too. Now, if you want to beat autoimmune and thrive, make sure you sign up for my free video training at freeautoimmunetraining.com. That's freeautoimmunetraining.com and watch the first video right away. Take good care. Bye for now.